0: Hey everyone and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast and in this episode we have a bunch of stuff. Uh, First, apparently Ubuntu 23.10 completely broke graphical dev package installs outside of the repos, like packages you download from the internet, you cannot install them graphically anymore. Uh, There's the new GNOME executive director controversy which I personally do not understand at all so we'll talk about that. There's the new installer OpenSUSE is working on. Uh, We also have some more driver and performance improvements. We have some updates to the Thelio line of desktops from System76. We have updates on HDR, on the NVIDIA graphics driver, the open source ones, uh, on NVIDIA Wayland support, and a lot more. So as always, all the links I use to make this podcast are in the show notes. And all the links you can use to support the show are also in the show notes. So, let's begin. So, first is Ubuntu 23.10. It is a very good release. We already talked about it in the previous episode. I have a video covering all the changes. It's a really solid one. I think it shows that Ubuntu still has a place on the desktop, still wants to focus on that. It's great. But also they broke something relatively important. It's one significant regression that I failed to catch in my review. Uh, with the brand new App Center that they introduced, which replaces their old fork of GNOME software, you cannot, out of the box, double-click a dev package to install it graphically. Any dev package that you download from the internet and want to install by just double-clicking it, you won't be able to. First, the App Center is not eligible in the list of applications to open a dev package. And if you force it, it will just have a spinner running in the background, and it will do nothing. Previously, you could do that. You double-clicked it, it opened the uh, Ubuntu Software Center, which was basically GNOME software, and you had an install button. You didn't get any screenshots, anything, because they are not in the package itself, but you could still install a local dev package, graphically. Now, you can't. This might seem like a non-issue, Until you realize that stuff like Google Chrome, like Microsoft Edge, like Discord or Steam, they all provide their packages that you're supposed to download from their website to your computer and double click on them to install. And that's the behavior that you don't want people to use. You want them to use the repos, you want them to add a PPA or to look at snaps or flat packs or whatever. But the reality is most people coming to Linux come from Windows and on Windows what you do is download an installer from the internet and double click it to run it. And this behavior for their packages has been possible in Ubuntu since pretty much its very first release. You could do that I think at least in 6.06 but probably already in 5.10. So yeah, that's a big problem. You can still use the command line, you can use a dpkg-i to install a package, of course, but you can't do it graphically. That's a big problem. All software that provides an Ubuntu-compatible download from their website will simply not be able to be installed graphically out of the box on 23.10, and that's a terrible experience for beginners. I don't know if that's voluntary, if that's an oversight from the Ubuntu team but it sucks. And it's not even suggesting that you install a tool that lets you do that because there are plenty. Uh, You could install GNOME software, you could install GDEBI, which is a graphical package installer specifically designed for that. If they did not want the App Center to handle this, they could have at least provided a graphical tool out of the box or display a message saying, hey, to install this, you need to download this first. Not a great experience, but still better than not having any solution and forcing you to look it up online. I think it's a real miss here. A lot of people will just say, well, just use the command line. It's super easy. Why would you even bother with that? Just install GDB." yeah, you know how to do this. A lot of people will just think, okay, I downloaded uh, Google Chrome from the internet, and now I want to install it. They're going to double click the installer because that's what the instructions say, and and it's not going to do anything. And they're going to have for their first downloaded program, they're gonna have to look online to know how to install a program. That's not what you want people to be confronted with. It sucks. So either Ubuntu needs to update the App Center to support local dev package installs, or they need to ship GDEB iPre installed or, or anything else, any other tool. If they don't, it means that software distributors that provide dev packages that you download and install with a double click will have to provide command line instructions on their websites or detailed walkthrough like, okay, just open your app center, look for gdeb, i click install, and then download our dev package and double click it. This sucks for beginners. It's way too complicated. Ubuntu needs to fix this right now because this is a terrible experience uh, for People who are confronted with Linux for the first time and people who are confronted with Linux generally come from Windows and will generally use Ubuntu or Linux Mint. If they go for Ubuntu, they are going to have a bad experience. That's not good. It's a big problem. It needs to be fixed. Now, still on the topic of distributions, it looks like every distro needs to have their own brand new installer these days. Uh, Ubuntu released their own, uh, not in 23.10, but in 23.04, which is a good installer. Fedora is working on a complete UI revamp of Anaconda, which is the single worst distro installer uh, that I've ever used in terms of UX and how elements are positioned on screen. So it's good that they're redesigning it. And we have a lot of other different installers. We still have the old Ubuntu one. We have Calamares. Uh, I think we have one for Gnome OS, which is different from anything else. Uh, We have another one in Vanilla OS, if I remember correctly. There are tons of installers for Linux. And OpenSUSE also had their own, uh, which was Yast. Basically, it's their installer, but also their software management tool. But it's two components of the same software, from what I understand. Yast is... Very complete as an installer, but it also looks straight out of the Windows 98 era. And while it gives you a lot of power to select what you want to install and and various configurations, it's also very confusing for a beginner because there are way too many loading screens. And let's be honest, visually, it looks like ass. So they're working on a new version called Agama. And this would accompany the new ALP, OpenSUSE release, ALP being their new way of building distros and variants of their distros automatically. And so this new installer focuses on being reusable, so presumably for all their OpenSUSE variants, but also for other distributions if they want it. It also focuses on integration with third-party applications. So the way I understand it is that other apps could maybe add screens to the installer or maybe be plugged in so you can install them at setup immediately by checking a few boxes and it also focuses on letting developers create the interfaces they want to showcase the install options they need. So basically it looks like it's extendable. Apparently the reason also for moving from the old Yast is that it has a lot of technical debt. It's been around for a long long time and so there's a lot of stuff under the hood that isn't fixed, that isn't neat, and that doesn't work as it's supposed to, and it isn't easy to contribute to because it's a lot of code and it uses its own UI library that people have to learn if they want to make new screens or modify existing ones. So, making a new installer does make sense if they want to evolve things a bit. They shared a few mockups, well, basically an animated GIF. Uh, They look pretty neat, I'm not sure I like their current proposed design of one long scrollable page with unfolding stuff. Uh, I don't think it looks very legible. And also in terms of UI, it doesn't look anything like any Linux desktop I've ever used. But I guess for an installer, that's a non-issue. Because, well, you pick the desktop environment from the installer in OpenSUSE and SUSE. So... the installer not looking like the desktop you're going to pick is obvious because you don't know which desktop you're going to use at that point in time. And it's an installer. Like It doesn't have to look exactly like the OS that you're going to use afterwards. Now, they say they want the install workflow to be simpler, which is one of the big problems with Yast. It is guided. It is not that complicated, but there are a lot of steps that a lot of users will just never care about and will just be confused by, especially, for example, the network settings and stuff like that. Yast is a very intimidating installer. It has a lot of pages, a lot of options. It even has loading screens with cryptic messages appearing. So, yeah, it's a good thing that they are looking to replace it. They're also looking for feedback uh, from the OpenSUSE community to make sure that they create something that will fit every use case, And I think it's a good thing. Installers are the first point of contact of a user with a distro. It makes a lot of sense to focus on that installer and to try and make it better and more legible and easy to understand. Basically reassuring. What you want your installer to be is reassuring. You want users to feel at ease because they're installing an operating system on top of their device. That's something that can be very scary if you're not used to it. That's something a lot of people will have never done previously in their lives. And so you want it to be reassuring, simple, and easy to understand. So you don't feel like you're making a big mistake or that you're going to delete everything and not be able to recover anything. It's important. So I understand why there are so many. I wish projects could just like fuse together and maybe make one more standard installer that works for many more distros, but I guess that's difficult because a lot of distros don't use the same bases, the same packages, the same folder structure. It's understandable. And now it's time I tell you about our sponsor, and it's Thunderbird, as with every single episode of this podcast. Uh, Thunderbird, you know about it. It's your email client. It also handles contacts, calendars, RSS feeds, tasks, a lot more. It has a bunch of extensions to add support for various things and modify the interface, but what's interesting is that their latest release, version 115, or 115, called Supernova, revamped the entire UI of the app. You can still go back to the older interface if you prefer, But the new one, in my opinion, is much more usable, much nicer. You have complete control over the interface density, over the panels that you display, where you display them. You can add or remove buttons from the header bar in each view. So the calendar view, the mail view, the contacts view, you decide which buttons you want. It still supports all the extensions. It's a super good email client. I previously used uh, whatever my desktop environment provided. uh, So Kmail and and Calendar on KDE or or Geary and Gnome Calendar on Gnome. But now I just use Thunderbird. It's just perfect for all my needs. It's powerful enough. It's got a great usable, customizable interface. And I know that the moment I need to do something that isn't supported out of the box, I'll be able to find an extension that does it. So it's heavily recommended. Thanks to Thunderbird for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. And if you want to download it and give a shot to the new version, which is really worth it, I left a link in the show notes just for that. Okay, and now we're gonna have a weird controversy that I don't quite understand. So the Gnome Foundation had been looking for a new executive director. They've been searching, they've been seeing candidates, and they picked someone, finally. And their choice apparently is making waves in the community, They picked someone called Holly Million. Uh, This is someone who has 30 years of experience in leading various non-profits. Uh, She also uh, dabbled in filmmaking, in writing, in teaching, in public speaking. So on paper, it looks like someone who's pretty well suited to the role of leading a non-profit. Uh, She created the non-profit Artists United, which worked in creativity, collaboration between artists, and she also worked for the Biobricks Foundation, which is a nonprofit in the biotechnology sector. As far as I could find on the internet, both experiences were pretty successful. What seems to be striking people is that she doesn't have any experience in software projects or in IT, and this seems to be raising questions in the community about the selection process, but I don't see how this is an issue. The executive director of the GNOME Foundation isn't expected to write code, to review code, to collaborate on software. They're basically the face of the foundation, the management layer of the foundation. They're here to improve the communication of the foundation towards all other entities outside of the GNOME Foundation. They're here to work on fundraising, on partnerships. And as such, I think an experience in management and leading non-profits is way more important than having worked in a software or IT related environment before. Now, sure, it would have been awesome if they could have found someone who had that same sort of experience in leading nonprofits in the software world, but also someone who doesn't have a background in that specific space might have more diverse ideas. They're not locked into a vision for IT and software, they probably have a more open approach on creating these partnerships, on raising funds, on looking at various avenues that someone working in IT might not think about. I don't think this is a big deal at all, nor is Holly's background in shamanism. Some people, some disreputable people in my opinion, have made allusions uh, to their background in shamanism because apparently she dabbled in that. How is that a problem? It's it's a personal passion or personal belief or, or point of interest. How would that preclude you from working in different sectors? Uh, if we go that route, me playing Warhammer 40k or video games uh, should have prevented me from being chief product officer. That's uh, that's uh, uh, a C-suite position as well. Or me being a YouTuber right now makes me completely unemployable because, oh, that's not a serious job, is it? I'm sure a bunch of executives all around the world have way weirder and way nastier pastimes than than connecting with nature. So I can't honestly say I understand the mostly negative reactions I've seen online. People who think you need a complete background in a specific industry to occupy an executive position probably have never filled one such position or interacted with such an executive. When I worked in real estate, Most of our executives came from telecommunications, not real estate. This didn't prevent them from making the company I worked at the number one complete real estate company in France. They were doing a very competent job. At these levels, your skills, the things you know how to do and the approach, the way you approach a problem, are way more valuable than the industry you learn them in. Because the industry you can learn, the skills they take way longer to master. Learning how software works and how a software project is managed, you're going to learn that in a few months. Learning how to handle a complete non-profit and learning how to communicate and raise funds, that's 10 years of experience. It's easier to learn the industry than the skills you need for the job. Changing industries is completely normal at these levels. So, I really don't see how this is controversial. Uh, it it looks more like, oh, Gnome doing weird stuff, still Gnome, we don't like Gnome. Sort of sounds like that to me. So I don't quite understand it. If you have a differing opinion, let me know uh, in the comments of this podcast. You, you can leave comments either on Mastodon under the post... Uh, this podcast will publish, or on the podcast website at Uh Let me know what you think about this, because for me, it's a complete non-issue, and this person seems to have the perfect experience to lead a non-profit like the GNOME Foundation. Now, still talking about open source software, it looks like, as a whole, it's not in great shape contributions-wise and, and health-wise in terms of projects. A recent report by Sonatype, which is a software supply chain management platform, so basically a platform that lets you make sure that everything you use in your own projects and infrastructure is well maintained and secured, uh, they analyzed more than a million open source projects. And it looks like only 11% of these are actively maintained by anyone. In terms of pure numbers, that's an enormous amount, but in terms of percentage, it's pretty, pretty low. They looked at software developed with JavaScript, with Python, with .NET and Go, and they didn't just go look on GitHub and grab any old project. They looked at what's currently available in software repos like NPM or PyPI, and they found that open source projects were 18% less maintained in 2023 than in 2022. Their report also showed that one in eight open source downloads has a known vulnerability, although 96% of these already have a version with a fix available. And they also showed that open source consumption has slowed in the past two years uh, from various companies that need software to do whatever they need to do. Now, it's not all grim, because they found that the projects that were actually maintained are generally implementing cybersecurity best practices very well and of the people they audited only 10 percent reported that they had a breach due to an open source vulnerability in the past year. So basically if you pick your open source projects carefully then you're probably more secure than a lot of other software that isn't open source but also you need to be careful at what you choose to install and use from NPM, PyPI, and others, because it's very easy to end up with a library or or a a piece of, of your whole software puzzle that will not be maintained and that will be insecure as a result. So it's still a very real maintainer problem in the open source community. Like, we're hearing about this all the time all major software projects and minor software projects suffer from a lack of contributions and a lack of people willing to spend the time to work on that. And that's mostly because there's also a lack of funding for these projects, so it's hard to attract people uh, to work for free on a library or to push a company that uses your projects from NPM or whatever else uh, to actually contribute back some code to it. It's not that easy. And not everything, of course, is developed and published with the goal to be an active library or tool. Some projects are just done and the person who created them is just not interested in them anymore. They were just a learning experiment or there's no new features they could add so they just don't touch it anymore unless there's a big vulnerability that someone reports. But still, the lack of contributions for a lot of projects is a very real problem, even for major open source software. And this leads to security issues and some image problems for open source software. Open source is still like the backbone of the internet and of virtually every single infrastructure in the world. But we do have issues that we need to work on. And personally, I have zero idea on how to fix uh, the funding problem first, which will then probably end up fixing the contributions problem. Now let's talk about the Linux kernel, and I previously reported that the LTS program, which is the long-term support program for Linux kernels, will move from supporting kernels for six years to only two years, which seems pretty normal for virtually most people, Uh, for any desktop user, like you don't need to stick to the same kernel for more than two years, like this makes no sense for any use case, and for servers, generally you probably will want to upgrade as well but some use cases they need the utmost stability and security and they run on old hardware that might be abandoned by a newer version of the kernel so they do tend to need a bit more than two years of support and for that there's the super long-term support program or SLTS. This Category of kernels, so kernels marked with the SLTS tag, get a decade of support, so 10 full years. And this series currently includes kernels as old as 4.14 all the way to 5.15. And now the kernel 6.1 will now be part of the program as well. So important to note, as the SLTS program, the super long-term support program, isn't an let's say, official Linux kernel developer thing, Uh, it's headed by the Civil Infrastructure Platform, or CIP, that's a project from the Linux Foundation, so it is sort of official, but it's not the Linux kernel developers that are like voluntarily and officially maintaining kernels for everyone, it's a separate project doing all that work. So the CIP project, they aim to provide a stable base for industrial and for civil infrastructure Their goal is basically to offer a very stable, very well-tested, very reliable platform that anyone can rely upon. And so they're running this SLTS program and they added the Linux kernel 6.1 to it so it will get support until August 2033. Now, do note that if you want to use these long-term supported versions, you need to move to their branch of the kernel, the CIP branch, or or to use a distro that relies on this CIP kernel. Uh, Depending on the distro you use, these might be readily available or not. Uh, The support isn't being provided directly by Linux kernel developers. If your distro doesn't support this, they will not be shipping uh, these kernels to you. You have to switch to a PPA or repo or something of that sort to get access to these uh, well-supported kernels but at least there's an option for people who really need the utmost stability. As I said, two years for LTS can be a bit short for certain projects. Using a 10-year-old kernel in a consumer device is probably madness, you probably should not do it, but for certain use cases, it makes perfect sense, so it's good to have the option. Now it's time for our usual segment on drivers and performance improvements and first we have an interesting change uh, to the drivers for the direct rendering manager so DRM this is not DRM as in novo or stuff that locks your games down or whatever it's DRM as in it handles the display uh, display kind of stuff uh, and so these drivers uh, will get a few improvements in the Linux kernel 6.7 But what's more interesting is that they're getting re-licensed with a dual license. Uh, They're getting re-licensed under the GPLv2, but also the MIT license. And the goal is to let these drivers be implemented in other non-GPL systems, like, for example, all the BSDs. Uh, Basically, these drivers were GPLv2 only, and so systems that did not make use of the GPL couldn't really make use of them because if you implement this project in your project then you're sort of probably going to have to make adjustments to it and all these adjustments would have to be GPL maybe parts of the projects would become GPL as well so that's why it wasn't the most compatible thing with for example BSD. Having the MIT license on that makes it usable by virtually everyone else Uh, which means that, yeah, the BSD projects can benefit from all the improvements of the Linux kernel display drivers, which is really nice. Now, the MIT license is very permissive, and so to prevent abuse from certain manufacturers, for example, NVIDIA, the kernel symbols that are used by these drivers will be kept GPL only, so non-GPL drivers cannot take advantage of these symbols, uh, something NVIDIA has tried to do repeatedly in the past. Now, in terms of Nvidia support, we have some progress on the open source Vulkan driver for Nvidia GPUs called NVK. The Linux kernel 6.6 will add the user space API that NVK needs to actually work, and the initial NVK code has been merged from Mesa 23.3 that should release before the end of the year. So basically, at the beginning of 2024, Uh, people who run a very recent system with the latest MESA drivers and the latest kernel will be able to use the NVK driver on NVIDIA GPUs. It doesn't mean it's going to be perfectly usable, but you'll be able to test it. On top of that, developers are trying to land as many Vulkan extensions and improvements they can to make sure that the first release of the NVK drivers is solid. Of course, as the developers put it, if you plan to buy an NVIDIA GPU to just use these drivers, you probably shouldn't unless your plan is to contribute to the driver because it won't be very usable uh, for another year or two. Now, the developers are also working on a Rust-based shader compiler that will be crucial to ensure good performance in the future. So all the pieces are slowly falling into place. Uh, Things are looking good, basically, with the recent work on the Nuvo drivers to allow reclocking the GPU, plus these new Vulkan drivers, plus the OpenGL drivers that already landed in MESA, and all the work that every single one of these projects is doing, there's a very real future where we will not need the NVIDIA proprietary drivers anymore. Now, as per performance, it will take a while to reach the same levels as the proprietary drivers, but at least these won't be mandatory, and that's really nice to be able to have a complete open source stack for NVIDIA GPUs. Really nice. And in terms of AMD GPUs, ray tracing support is progressing nicely as well, apparently reaching a point where gamers can expect it to just work on new titles. Now, some issues are still there, especially for stuff like The Witcher 3, like Cyberpunk 2077, but the general expectation is that ray tracing on AMD GPUs should now just work if you have the very latest graphical stack. Of course, performance isn't stellar yet, it still lags a bit behind the official AMD Vulcan driver's performance, so this will be the main focus for this work now. But still, it is there, basically. It works, you can use it on any single game that supports ray tracing, which is really, really nice for people with very pricey GPUs. Now, let's talk software with OnlyOffice. Uh, this is an open source Office suite. They've previously been a sponsor of the channel, uh, but that's that's where it stopped, basically. Uh, they have a new update, version 7. They're not a, a sponsor of this episode or the channel anymore, by the way. So this is not a sponsor segment, if you were wondering. Uh, so they have a new update, version 7.5. And it brings a bunch of cool improvements. And the main one is a new PDF editor that supports annotations, filling out forms, adding text comments, adding drawings, and more. So it's not a replacement to something like Acrobat PDF, so you can't really modify a PDF document, but it is a very well-designed tool that will let you interact with PDFs, something that certain desktops seem to have a a hard time with, Uh, notably the Gnome PDF Reader lacks a bunch of features. On KDE, Ocular is pretty nice, Uh, but on Gnome, for example, you might lack something. Uh, So instead of installing Ocular, you could just install only Office, the Office Suite. So you have an open source Office Suite that is very, very competent in my experience, more compatible with Microsoft Office than LibreOffice is, although it doesn't have as many features as LibreOffice in my experience as well, Uh, and you will also get a competent PDF editor. Now in terms of other improvements, uh, the whole suite gained better scaling options. Uh, You can go over 200% scaling if you have a really high resolution screen or a visual impairment that makes you need a bigger display size. It now supports SVG image files. It can open password protected files, which is important. It supports screen readers as well. Although this is a beta feature, they're still making moves on accessibility, which is cool. Uh, And in terms of module specific features, the word processor editor gained smart paragraph selection. So it's easier to select an entire paragraph by just double or triple clicking it. Uh, You've got the spreadsheet module, which got better pivot tables and uh, the sort-by formula, which they didn't have before, and the presentation module gained a morph transition, and you can now just click a placeholder in your slide to insert some smart art, which they support. So you can download the new version of OnlyOffice from their website directly, uh, but the Snap, the Flatpak, and the app image formats have not been updated yet at the time I'm recording this. In my experience, they generally update them about a week or two weeks after the main release. So it's going to take a little while. But yeah, it's worth it. I think OnlyOffice is a really good Office suite. Uh, I've used it extensively, even uh, web-hosted uh, on one of my servers, plugged into my next cloud server. It's pretty decent. Uh, it's more compatible than LibreOffice with certain Microsoft documents. Uh, that's what I found when I did a bit of testing. I have a video Relatively old video about that uh, on my channel, uh, which should showcase that pretty well. It, it's not a bad office. It will never look right on any desktop because it's sort of, it's. I think it's electron based uh, or, or something around those lines. Uh, it's It's not well integrated, but it works pretty well. Now, let's talk hardware uh, with System76. Uh, they have refreshed their Thelio line of desktops, which is a very nice uh, desktop, if I might say so, just by the looks of it, because I never used one. But visually, they're really nice. They basically designed the whole case themselves, and they also provide all the schematics and documentation to Recreate your own if you want. Uh, They open source all the designs, all the manuals, everything. Uh, You you can find all the documentation on their their case. Or you can just buy one from them if you prefer that. And so they refined that case uh, since they started it. And they've now applied separate cooling spaces for the GPU and the CPU, so the heat from one of these spaces doesn't bleed out onto the other. So there's no one cooler that is doing extra work when the system is working at full speed. Uh, This allowed them apparently to support Ryzen 9 CPUs, which they couldn't support before in their enclosure, which is nice. They also added some side vents to the case to help with heat dissipation and airflow. And they also added I.O. ports on top of the case. This was apparently something a lot of people complained about. All the I.O. was at the back. And if you have your desktop on the ground next to you, it's sometimes very useful to have at least a USB-A or USB-C port to plug something in directly. So that's what they did, they added USB-A, they added a headphone and microphone jack and a USB-C port right on top of the case while maintaining like easy to open enclosures and repairability and everything. It should make the case much nicer to use uh, for people who regularly need to plug stuff inside their desktops. They also apparently improved the repairability of the case, uh, like I said it's fully open source, uh, but they also added fan headers throughout the system to make it easier to service and they also ship with all the screws that you need to add, for example, uh, 2.5 inch drives. Uh, They're all lying there in the case uh, in their own neat little slots, so you never have to find a separate bag or something. Uh, It's easier, it's more modular. I, I don't really know why they say it's repairability, because it's more modularity than repairability, but it's still a cool thing. And since all the documentation and schematics are available, I guess it is sort of repairable. Uh, interestingly, they also said they want to work on a new entry in their Thelio line, which is called Thelio Minor, and it would be a replacement for the Meerkat mini PC that they sell currently. Uh, the Meerkat seems to be a, a device from an ODM, so basically a, a generic chassis that they buy, and they just customize a little bit, just like they do with all their laptops. It's virtually what every single Linux manufacturer does. Uh, they buy a reference device, from Clevo, from Tongfang, or stuff like that. Uh, They pick the components they want inside to make sure it's compatible. They apply their own customizations to the keyboard, to the fan profiles, to the software the taste it out. They add their logos. It's not just, I buy something from the ODM, I put a logo and I resell it. But it's not their own case designs. Uh, I know that Purism has their own design for their laptops. I know that Star Labs only custom designs all their stuff. Uh, but generally, every, and of course, the Thelio line from System76 is custom designed. but everything else comes from ODMs. And so uh, apparently System76 wants to replace their, their little mini PC by a Thelio design, but they don't quite know when or, or how it's going to be done. It would definitely uh, give them more control over the whole performance, upgradability and looks, which is always a good thing. So it's really interesting stuff. As always, it's done in the open with System76, which I really like. And I like the look of these Teleos. I think they're kind of pricey for the hardware you get, uh, but you do support Linux's development because System76 does contribute to Linux, uh, the Linux kernel and various other pieces. They're creating their own desktop environment as well with, uh, with Pop!OS and Cosmic. And they look like excellent devices, even though they're a bit pricey. I hope I'll get to review one at some point. But as far as I know, they still don't ship those desktops to Europe, uh, which is where I live. uh, So I can't really get one and test one out. Okay, and now we're going to finish this episode, as always, with the gaming news. And first, we have NVIDIA uh, submitting changes to Proton. They want to help uh, support their own technologies through Proton. An NVIDIA engineer has sent pull requests to DXVK, VKD3D Proton, and Proton itself to add support for their Reflex technology, which is basically something that enables very low latency. Uh, it's basically giving you a low latency mode that gives you a way more reactive gaming experience, but It does necessitate, from what I understand, a G-Sync or FreeSync because NVIDIA can use FreeSync as G-Sync. So it needs a a G-Sync compatible display. You need a compatible mouse at high refresh rates. You need an NVIDIA GPU that supports Reflex. But if you have such a big high-end gaming setup, it's nice to have the option to actually enable that Reflex mode and game at very low latency if you want to game competitively. Uh, I did not pronounce that right. <laughs> if you if you like to compete in online games, uh, then yes, I think it's pretty good if you have that setup uh, to be able to do that on Linux. Now, we also have a new beta driver for NVIDIA GPUs, and I generally don't talk about beta drivers, but this one is pretty interesting uh, because it will add support for more color depth with 10 bit per component support over HDMI, it will fix issues with variable refresh rates under Wayland. It will also fix VR displays under Wayland, which means that stuff like Steam VR on NVIDIA should work under Wayland with these new drivers. It looks like it's still going to rely on X Wayland. It's going to need a relatively recent version of X Wayland to run. But still, it means that you can run Wayland and do some VR. You don't have to log out, log back in through X11, and do something. So. That's one more roadblock being removed. And generally, these drivers do implement a lot of fixes for various bugs and various improvements for Wayland support, which is really, really nice. It's probably the last sticking point of the NVIDIA drivers on Linux. It's their Wayland support. So if they can fix that, it will still be very nice to have a fully open source stack, but also it will make it less crucial to have it right now, which is good. And we also have some updates on HDR and color management support on Linux. Uh, there was the X.org developer conference, XDC 2023. Uh, if you don't know, Wayland is an X.org project, so it's not just talking about like the dying X11, it's also talking about Wayland. And so we had two talks, uh, specifically one from Melissa Wen from Egalia, and the second one was from Joshua Ashton from Valve. They specifically talked about the work that they have already done to improve color management and to land the first bits of HDL support on the Steam Deck, which is going to be available in SteamOS 3.5. I installed the beta or preview release of that on my SteamOS console. Enabling HDR uh, is available in the little options menu. I tried it on Starfield, it didn't work like the colors were all messed up, but I'm not sure if Starfield actually supports HDR. I will try it with a game that I know does support it, uh, and I'll see if it actually works or not, because my TV supports HDR, And my PC also should support it, uh, since SteamOS now supports it, and my PC runs SteamOS. So I'm gonna try it out on a game that actually works with that, because I'm pretty sure Starfield doesn't support that. Maybe maybe it needs an update to Proton as well to actually work. Uh, So going back to those talks about HDR, there's apparently a lot more work to be done. Like the first implementation on the Steam Deck is nice, but having HDR support on the generic Linux desktop is apparently a while away. Uh, the protocols in Wayland, because they're only gonna work on that for Wayland, not for X11, the protocols in Wayland aren't fully defined yet. There's still no proper color management API for Linux. It's not been defined either. And various Wayland compositor, once all these APIs are written down and ready to be used, Wayland compositors will need to implement support for all of that. So it's probably a few years away. Uh, At least there's a plan. There's a first implementation on the deck showing that it is indeed doable. Uh, But yeah, it's being worked on, but don't expect full HDR support in the coming four months or six months. I think it's a two or three years thing. Uh, So it's a while away. But at least if we can have it in game scope and stuff like that, it means that gaming-focused Linux distributions that do ship with Gamescope might be able to have that first implementation for games, which is one of the big use cases for HDR. Like, how often will you watch HDR movies or content on your Linux laptop or desktop? That's not exactly what they're done for. For professionals and professional work that need to work with HDR, sure, it's important. But I think gaming is one of the biggest use cases of HDR uh, on a generic desktop or laptop. So if we can actually support that through specific gaming distros, that's a first good step. And we'll see for the generic support in a few years. So this will conclude this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you have comments or ideas or questions you can leave them in the comments, either under the post uh, on Mastodon or any other Fediverse-enabled app for this podcast. You can also leave me a comment on podcast.thelinuxexp.com. It's the website where I publish this. Uh, And as always, if you want to learn more about any of these uh, issues or points or topics, all the links are in the show notes. If you want to support the show, all the links are in the show notes as well. And if you want to check out our sponsor, Thunderbird, I left a link uh, to their Flatpak release as well uh, right in the show notes. And if you want to download a version for Windows, Mac OS or a non-Flatpak version, you can head over to Thunderbird.net to do just that. So thank you all for listening. And I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.